One, two, three, four. Welcome to Convergence with Oladeji Tiamu. So I am a clinician at the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program, and I'm also deeply passionate about the role that technology has in resolving disputes. Much of this interest developed while I was a law student at Harvard, and after graduating while I was an online dispute resolution fellow with Resolution Systems Institute in Chicago. In my current role, I am a supervising attorney for law students at Harvard, and also I get to do interesting legal research into the relationship between technology and dispute resolution. This voyage has contributed to the creation of Convergence, where I will be speaking with thought leaders working at the frontier of technology and dispute resolution. Today, I have the immense privilege of speaking with Colin Rule, a visionary, technologist, and also a dear friend. Colin is currently the president and CEO of Mediate.com, and in 2011, he co-founded Modria.com, an ODR provider based in Silicon Valley. From 2003 to 2011, Colin was the director of online dispute resolution for eBay and PayPal. So I think that makes him part of the PayPal Mafia, a group of PayPal alums that have gone on to do tremendous things in this world. During his time with eBay, Colin pioneered new technological platforms to resolve e-commerce disputes, and this would later serve as a model for Amazon and Alibaba. Colin's legal research has been featured in numerous law review journals, and he has also given presentations on ODR throughout the world. So let's get to it. All right, Colin Rule, the man of the hour. Welcome to Convergence, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, Oladeji. Thank you so much for the invitation and convergence. I love that title. So it's all about technology and it's all about dispute resolution. Great. And a That's my argu- happy place. <laughs> and an argument that I'm sure you're going to illustrate is that the two really are intertwined with one another, hence convergence. Mm. This is why they this is you're perfect at Harvard. You see all the big picture. It all comes together. You know, it all makes sense when you got a big brain like yours. That's great. <laughs> so, Colin, we've now crossed paths a few times. And after every interaction, to be honest, I always ask myself whether your first words as a child was online dispute resolution. Uh, <laughs> because you're kind of like Michael Jordan in that it feels like the work you're doing right now, it feels like you were destined to do it from birth. Um, so I would love for you to set the record straight. What got you interested in online dispute resolution and around when in your life did that interest begin? Well, it's, you know, it, uh, first of all, compliments will get you everywhere as I've said several times. So thank you for that. Um, you know, you're the first person who's ever asked me on one of these conversations about what my first word was. And oddly, <laughs> it is relevant, I think, because uh, I was born in, uh, in 1970 in New York City, and uh, my mom put me in front of Sesame Street. And that was really where I learned my first word ever was cookie, because of Cookie Monster. 
because I was watching so much Sesame Street. Now, what does that say about my developing brain that I learned to speak from a cathode ray tube? You know, that was kicking out crazy images of Jim Henson's Muppets, you know, uh, frenetically, you know, shouting words at each other. But there might, I, I do think, again, one of the things I talk about in my trainings on online dispute resolution is I talk about digital immigrants versus digital natives. And one of the things that I say to the older generation is, you know, look, the younger generation was born into a world where this technology always existed. So their brains have developed around the presence of this technology. It doesn't feel dehumanizing. It doesn't feel weird. It's not out of left field because it's just always been there. And I think maybe turning that lens on myself a little bit, and I didn't think, I didn't make this connection until right now you asked me this question. Again, my first word I learned from the TV. And I think that a prior generation would have found that very creepy. So now we think about the younger generation, you know, they're coming up and, and they're learning to read off of iPads. And I think that that does shape the way that they think about the world as well. So, uh, you know, I, 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 one of the things I write about, um, in, I've written in several of my books and uh, in a chapter I just did for a book about personal histories and conflict resolution, I talk about how when I was in middle school, I got really kind of deeply depressed and dropped out of school for a little bit and was sort of working remotely. Um, but, and this was early 80s, so, you know, 10, 11 years after uh, saying cookie, after seeing it on Sesame Street. Um, and one of the things that I did was I really got into the bulletin boards, which was uh, a, a dial-up community of kind of computer enthusiasts in North Texas who, you know, was sort of pre-internet. We would get together and we would talk about books and culture and debate, philosophy all night, uh, you know, but it was, it was, it was 300 baud modems, no images, uh, all text. And for me, that connection was really, really helpful to, for me in a very difficult phase of my life. And, and again, I think that was very formative for me as I got, as I moved on and then e-commerce and the internet emerged, I had this whole notion of, wait, all these, these channels of communication that have been important to me in, in my life, I think they're gonna be important for people moving forward as, as society digitizes. And it just seemed inevitable to me that wherever people are, there's going to be conflict. So there's going to be conflict online. So, you know, I, I do think that developmentally, that was how I got exposed to a lot of these ideas from these very early um, and formative engagements with technology. So it was a very insightful question. I don't know if you intended to go down that particular rabbit hole, but, uh, but I, I think you, you hit on something there. Oh, I, I love it. And just to be clear, I, I don't think your first word was cookie as in the food. It probably, knowing you and your love of technology, it probably was just cookie for privacy on browsers. Like <laughs> That's pretty creepy. That's pretty creepy to think that maybe I got that right. But who knows? Who knows? I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, mark it in the realm of impossibility. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we always, in, in this community, we're always talking about, and I know you and Ethan are frequently having conversations about how, uh, Ethan Cash, that is, how technology um, solves disputes, but it can also create new types of disputes. Right. So I feel like in, in your spirit of coming to the internet and finding a community there, there's also kind of a prediction that disputes will develop out of this new technology as well. It can heal people and it can also separate people to a certain extent. Well, definitely. And I think uh, in the early days of the internet, back when I was at Harvard in the late 90s, there was a lot of optimism, kind of idealism about what the internet was gonna usher in, in terms of human interaction. And I think those of us in the conflict resolution field, you know, we might not have gotten sucked into some of the wishful thinking as quickly, 
I, I do remember going to a conference in Washington, D.C. with Ethan Katch. This probably would have been late 90s. And uh, there was a guy doing a presentation on the hot technology of the day, <coughs> which was called EDI, Electronic Document Interchange. And the whole vision of EDI was it was going to standardize all the communication between computers. And this guy was saying it's going to eliminate all conflicts. We're not going to have any more conflicts because EDI is going to solve them all proactively. And Ethan stood up. I didn't really know him that well at, at the time, but he stood up and he said, you know, respectfully, sir, the power of technology to resolve disputes is dwarfed by the power of, of technology to generate new disputes. And I remember I turned around and looked at Ethan and said, that's a smart guy, uh, because that's absolutely true. And I think a lot of the rosy predictions about what technology was going to usher in, in terms of human understanding, uh, you know, I think all you just have to do is look around and see that the tools of technology have been used by conflict. I, I just read a great book that talked about conflict entrepreneurs, but I think of them as conflict exacerbators, you know, people who see it in their interest to create new conflict and to seed misunderstanding and uh, for their own purposes. Um, and I think that that's really, it's an arms race. It's an arms race between those of us who want to use technology to build empathy and understanding and resolve disputes and the people who might use those exact same tools for the opposite purpose. And I do think that this current chaotic period where we don't really know what the internet is or you know, where it's going, I think that works to the benefit of the chaos agents. Um, but I do think over time, we're going to civilize cyberspace and we're gonna find ways to build essentially new civic institutions online that reinforce our values, our shared values, not only within small communities, but you know, as, as humanity. And I think we're gonna be able to, because technology is just a tool. You can use it to, to do a lot of things. You can do it to use it to, use it to do a lot of bad things. You can use it to do a lot of good things. But I do believe that the power and potential of technology to help people resolve their disputes fastly, quickly and efficiently and effectively, and most important, in a fair manner, I, I think it's, it's obvious to me that we're barely tapping the potential for technology to help us achieve that. And I like how you put it with conflict entrepreneurs. and. On, in one camp, you have conflict entrepreneurs, and in the other camp, you have people like yourself who are disputes resolution entrepreneurs to a certain extent. Sure. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that that um, tension or the delineation of the, those camps are neat to think about when we think about online dispute resolution. Um, so I, we've now, th I've thrown around the term online dispute resolution a couple of times, and both of us have mentioned Ethan Cash now a couple of times. And Ethan is, at least in our industry, he's, he's, he's often called the father of online dispute resolution. Absolutely. And, then, and then, you know, you, Colin Rule, are the godfather of online dispute resolution. <laughs> now, I, I, I blame Federico Ast, the CEO of uh, Cleros, for, for putting that moniker on me. I, he, I, was in a, I was in an interview and he said, well, you're the father of online. I said, no, no, I'm not the father. It's, on, it's Ethan Catch. He wrote the first book in the field. He named the field. Ethan is the father. And he said, well, if Ethan is the father, then you're the godfather. And uh, I guess that's gotten some traction because uh, I did not disavow the name. So I guess I embrace the name. I'm happy to be the godfather so long as Ethan's pioneering role is appropriately acknowledged. Right. So, uh, yeah. And so when, when you think of online, since you are the godfather of online dispute resolution, um, when, when you think about it as a term and as a concept, how, how would you define it? 
And once again, since you are the godfather, your definition does carry plenty of weight. <laughs> well, it also means I've been around long enough so that, uh, you know, you got to take everything with a grain of salt because, uh, you know, I may be me colored, for, you know, I, I may be colored by the thinking from 20 years ago and not be able to get my head into the new world. Um, but no, so I will say when we first started doing online dispute resolution, there was a lot of debate about what we were going to call it. And uh, there's an online conference every year that Ethan hosted starting in the late 90s called ADR Cyber Week. And I remember we had a discussion forum uh, with the nerds at the beginning of the field, like, what are we going to call this? And there was a lot of different proposals, but we eventually settled on ODR because we wanted to emphasize the connection to ADR. And um, my, my friend and, and colleague and, and former boss, well, current boss too, uh, Jim Malamed, who was the CEO and co-founder of Mediate.com, is now the chairman of the board of Mediate.com. Jim always used to say to me when we were working together in 98, 99, he would say, you know, if you squint a little bit, it's pretty hard to tell ODR and ADR apart. And I said, yeah, that probably is true. You know, as, as our society becomes more digitized, the notion of this is an online process or this is an offline process, that's going to be a meaningless question because it's both an online and an offline process, just like our lives now. Do we live online or offline? There's, it's not an or, it's a both. I mean, the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is we check our email, we pick up our phones. You know, we're living in both, uh, both venues. And even if you're meeting a friend for lunch, you, know, you may be texting them on the way there and then you call them to meet and then you get together face to face and you send them a photo and you show them things on your phone and then you, know, you walk away, you send the calendar event for the next lunch. Just this whole notion that it has to be online or offline is clearly a false dichotomy. And I think, uh, uh, you know, so the early days of ODR, because it was such a new idea using technology and ADR at all, the definition that we used and that I think Ethan and I used for a good 15 years was ODR is the use of information and communications technologies to help people resolve their disputes. Now, eventually we, we evolved that to say it's the use of information and communication technologies to help people prevent, manage, and resolve their disputes because it's not only about dispute resolution. And that's why I think you see people evolving from the term dispute resolution to more conflict management because there clearly are conflicts that need to happen and they need to be bigger. Um, so it's not just a matter of, well, let's go resolve all the conflicts because there are a lot of conflicts that are not in, in a phase where they're ripe for resolution. But I, and I think that definition served us well in the early days because it was such a radical proposition to introduce technology into ADR at all. And the reason why we said information and communications technologies is we wanted to make clear that it's not just the internet. You know, the telephone is very powerful communications technology. The LCD projector is a powerful communications technology. So we wanted to think expansively, not only about the technologies we had, but also the technologies yet to come. And I think that, that uh, there was some foresight to that because we didn't know that the iPhone was going to emerge and that everybody was gonna have these, you know, little supercomputers that they carry around in their pockets all the time. So that's a, that's a huge ODR technology that we didn't even have when we crafted this definition in the early days. But I think as ODR has sort of hit mass adoption and it started to be you know implemented in courts and um, you know implemented around the world the limits of that definition I, I think have become more stark uh, and there are people out there who are doing you know I would go to a court and I would say to them okay well let's get some ODR going and uh, a month later they would say hey we got ODR going and I would say oh, okay what did you do and they said well when someone's hearing is coming up we now automatically send them an email reminder that says they need to come in for their hearing and we send them the date of their hearing. Okay, well, as a mediator, you know, and we talk about online dispute resolution and we say it's using information and communications technology to help people resolve their dispute. Well, yeah, 
if they're reminded that their hearing is coming up and that, you know, that's automatically kicked out by some server someplace, I guess you could say it fits under that definition. But that's not really what I think of when I think about ODR. You know, I'm really thinking about certain tools, technologies, approaches, best practices that can help people diagnose their problems, negotiate resolutions, reach agreement through mutual acceptance, or then potentially rely on a third party to get resolution. And just an email reminder kicked out by the court doesn't fit that bill. So now what we're seeing is the core definition of ODR as technology plus ADR is true, but it's being uh, elaborated upon. And I really feel like there are two main legs of ODR that are emerging. One is what I, what I would call facilitative technologies. And the National Center for State Courts is putting a lot of energy into that side of ODR, which is creating an online collaborative workspace, like an online room where the parties can come together and they can utilize tools, techniques, structures to try and uh, resolve their dispute through mutual agreement. That's kind of what the National Center for State Courts is calling ODR. Now, there are some things I don't like about making that exclusively what ODR is, especially because it doesn't include the evaluative component, which is a big part of ODR. You know, we've, we've resolved more than a million disputes with the American Arbitration Association doing online evalu evaluations of these cases. So, and, and even having a hybrid online offline approach. So I don't think that the NCSC definition in toto covers the, the full breadth of ODR practice. But the other leg that I speak to is what I, what I think of as algorithmic resolutions. And a lot of people think that that means artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I think that's part of it. I think that's where it lives. This notion of having computers play a greater role in helping us kind of understand our disputes, score our disputes, do research into other resolutions to similar kinds of disputes. Um, but I think there's other exciting things that are happening there in terms of game theory-based processes, um, crowdsourcing, sort of math-based decentralized justice approaches. You look at uh, blind bidding mechanisms structured negotiation mechanisms, or even tools like Smart Settle that are very uh, sophisticated, multi-variable um, algorithmic optimization tools for helping people kind of overcome their stuck negotiating points and get to Pareto optimal outcomes. So this whole notion of computers as algorithmic engines that can, in you know, very soon in the future, I think they're going to be able to uh, achieve insights that we as humans will not, it'll be beyond our capability to see things as clearly as, as some of the technology can see them. And the technology doesn't see it the same way the humans see it, but I think understanding the value that sort of the, this algorithmic power can bring to dispute resolution, I think is very exciting. And there's, there's an incredible amount of potential there. And we, we need to embrace that. We can't say, well, computers are, are good for helping people communicate, so we're just going to focus on the facilitative side. It's like, no, no, we need to start to think about what we call in ODR the fourth party where technology has a seat at the table. And we can ask that technology questions, you know, what, what are some alternatives to this resolution for me? What's the zone of potential agreement? You know, where are some areas where I can get more value, but it doesn't detract from the value of the other side. So the technology can help us engage in integrated negotiations as opposed to distributed negotiations. So it's, there again, as I said, we're just barely tapping the potential of computers to help us with all of that. But, uh, and, it, and it, it, I think in a sense, I'm maybe a bit more excited about um, the value let to be, yet to be mined in the algorithmic side. Of the yeah. And, and the fascinating part of all of this and, and just hearing you share uh, that dichotomy is that we're still in the early innings of online dispute resolution. Oh, yeah. Um, and it, there's something that just really excites me is thinking about 
if we have these technological tools today with the rate that technology is evolving, what will we be able to use in the future to resolve disputes even more efficiently, perhaps decentralized way? And I kind of, I, I wanted to touch on um, the, the idea that you shared earlier about how um, it was a radical idea to incorporate technology into ADR, going back to when you first met Ethan um, at that conference. Sure. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting because many people should know or may already know that when you got involved in the field, there was probably plenty of resistance from the established ADR community about incorporating technology into resolving this, these disputes. And that's probably in part because ADR does rely on interpersonal communication, if you will, face-to-face -face engagement. And there can be concerns from some parts of the community that um, when you move something to an online venue that the same ease or the same level of understanding between parties won't be present when they can't see their full uh, body expressions. So, mm -hmm. so what are what are your thoughts about that? Well, that's that's it's a very very rich topic, and I I, I will say, you know, I, even before we created the field of online dispute resolution, you know, I, I was I'm an ADR groupie, you know, I, I love. <laughs> I love ADR. I love dispute resolution. As soon as I found it when I was an undergrad and I did my first mediation training uh, with, with uh, some trainers from the American Friends Services Committee, I was like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do with my whole life. And that was before there was any technology in ADR. Uh, I remember going to um, my earliest conflict resolution conferences in the early 90s. I remember going to a conference in DC of the Academy of Family Mediators in probably 93 and sitting with my friend, John Healy, who had started a website called ConflictNet. Again, it was pre-internet. So this is, uh, you know, when people were still dialing up over modems, which as I said, I loved back when I was in middle school. So this was in my sweet spot. But I remember explaining to mediators, you know, well, one of the things you get is you get email. And they would say, well, what's that? And I would say, well, it's where, you know, you send like a letter to like a postal net letter, but you type it in on the computer and it gets sent over the internet and then it gets sent to the other side. So you don't have to use a stamp or, and they would look at me like, well, how would that work? Like they just, you know, and the body language was really interesting. You know, the, the stereotype about technology in the 70s and 80s was that it was going to somehow dehumanize us. And we were all going to turn into kind of automatons, you know, kind of man machines. There were all these movies about that when I was growing up. And I remember, you know, again, in, in the 80s and 90s, they had all this stuff about, well, we're going to have to change our behavior to work with computers. You know, like that typefaces that they said, these are the typefaces we have to use in the future because they're easier for computers to read. Um, and I remember when the Palm Pilot came out, you know, you couldn't write in the normal alphabet. They made you learn this new alphabet that you had to write in this little screen on the bottom of your Palm Pilot uh, because it was easier for the Palm Pilot to understand than the way that we normally write letters. So there was just this whole notion that uh, technology was, was about sort of wiping out all the emotion and making us just sort of fit into the rows and columns of spreadsheets. And I, I just think there was a lot of paranoia in the field in the early days. Now, again, this is before Facebook, this is before iPhones, this is before you know, all of the technology that was yet to come. Um, the other thing that was a big issue in the early days uh, of the use of technology, um, late 90s, early aught aughts, you know, it was expensive. It was very expensive to buy a laptop, to get an internet connection, 
you know, it cost a lot of time and money. And, you know, it, it, you had to be a little bit of a nerd to figure it out. And this whole notion that somehow we were going to say, okay, well, now we're going to build access to justice on the basis of these tools. You know, if only rich people have access to technology and you're using technology to provide a doorway to the courthouse, aren't you just building a special doorway of the courthouse to, to the courthouse for rich people? And I think the digital divide was a, really a, a complete, you know, a, a, an insurmountable obstacle in the eyes of a lot of people in the field. You know, like, why would we build these tools just for the nerds that are willing to buy computers and, you know, get internet accounts? But again, what happened was technology democratized. And if anything, like I said, the younger generation is more comfortable communicating emotional things over technology than they are face-to-face. -face. I mean, that's the big criticism you hear, uh, particularly from the digital uh, immigrants, the older generation. They're like, oh, the young people don't even know how to talk to each other anymore. And there, you know, there's plenty of stories from the you know, the upbringing of my two sons where, you know, they, they had a lot of emotional interactions via technology because that was preferable for them. And I think that's now people realize actually people are much more emotional and much more frank online in online communication than they are face-to-face, -face, which is a, a separate problem. Um, so, you know, I, I do understand the resistance in the early days of the field with technology. Uh, and it's maybe because I am a nerd and because I love technology and I'm an ADR groupie, you know, I would go to a lot of these giants in the field who would be like, I'm never using technology for the work that I do. I mean, it completely was not on their radar. One of the founders of the program on negotiation, I'll tell you, I, I was working for him in Cambridge back in the 90s. And, you know, I said, hey, would you be an advisor for me on this ODR project? And he said, well, you know, you've been a great employee and I know you're passionate about dispute resolution, but I think this whole ODR thing is bad for the work that I do because I'm all about getting people to sit at the table and look in each other's eyes and shake their hands. And you're telling them they can just go to a website and go click, click, click on a form and their problems will go away. And I just disagree with that. And I was completely rattled because this guy's my hero. And, but I had some cred because you know I'm, I'm such an ADR groupie. And I said, what if we only do the disputes that are online? Like only that arise between two people they never met, low dollar value disputes, and they're never going to meet. So if you say to them that they have to do it face-to-face, -face, you're essentially telling them they can't use it. And he sort of stroked his beard a little bit and then he said, okay, that's okay. If you do, do those disputes, it's okay. But I think that all parties that can get together face-to-face, -face, they should get together face-to-face. -to -face. I said, okay, that's good enough for me. <laughs> Let's go, I'll work on that basis. Um, and, and I even had a policy at that time, no family disputes. I didn't build ODR for family disputes. I just didn't think it was a good fit. 2000, 2001, 2002. And I even had parties come to me and say, but we want to do it online. You know, we've moved to different states. We've already divorced. We're just trying to figure out who's going to get the proceeds from the sale of the house. Can't you let us have a room to get together and work this out? And I said, nope, I'm sorry. I don't do family disputes. And now family ODR is the hottest area. I mean, there's itsovereasy.com. There's hellodivorce.com. There's blissdivorce.com. There's wevorce.com. They're cropping up all over the world because the younger generation in particular you know, how do they find their spouse? It's all match.com, swiping left and swiping left. You know, of course, if the marriage doesn't work out, all right, what app exists to help us, you know, figure out what to do now? I mean, the, the whole notion of it being creepy to divorce online because, you know, online is dehumanizing. I just think that's gone out the window. That's not the way yeah. that people feel about technology anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, I, that's I, been a real culture change. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Because, yeah, you can even go back to all of these dating apps. If people are meeting significant others online, um, then it's just like the other side of the coin, quite literally, where people are also 
um, going through divorce settlements online as well. Right. And or if coordinating there was... their co-parenting or pickup exactly. schedules or who's going to pay for T-ball, you know, yeah. like all of that. It makes sense that online would be a component of that. Yeah. And so it sounds like there was some resistance and that resistance has since been overcome, certainly. Uh, obviously, thanks to you and Ethan with all of the work you've done there. And Ethan also has this concept. I think he was one of the first people to iterate it as being uh, ODR as a fourth party. And you touched on this earlier. And maybe just for listeners who are uncertain around what that means, my understanding is that you have third party neutrals who are humans, and then you have the quote unquote fourth party, the algorithm that is providing support rather than replacing the third party neutral. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we talk about, you know, party one and party two are the disputants. Party three is the human neutral. And that could be a conflict coach, it could be a mediator, it could be an arbitrator, you know, there's lots of different roles that could be played by the third party. But the fourth party also has a seat at the table. And there are certain things that we ask the fourth party to do. You know, maybe we uh, today we say, hey, can you send out our calendar reminders? You know, can you keep track of our documents? Can you, uh, you know, there's lots of things that we ask um, computers to do to just make our lives easier and remove some of the administrative burdens, you know, that were associated with working it out face-to-face or on paper. But the fourth party is getting smarter all the time. And there are a lot of people who are experimenting with asking the algorithm to do things like, you know, hey, Alexa, what do you think a fair resolution to this dispute would be? Or, you know, um, hey, Alexa, you know, what's a fair amount of child support based on our income and healthcare expenditures from the last three or four years? I mean, those are things you can ask algorithms to do. And I think people talk about, well, that's artificial intelligence, machine learning. Well, yeah, I think AI and machine learning can play a role in that. But I think that a lot of things that we want computers to do, we don't want to do through machine learning because machine learning is where machines write their own rules and we don't really have control over what rules that they write. We might want to write the rules ourselves. And in California, there's there's something called DisoMaster, which is like a big Excel program you can buy. And you go in, you put in all the information about healthcare costs and tuition and everything. And it says, okay, this is the appropriate amount of child support. And everybody kind of uses this calculator. It's not machine learning. It's just, you know, all the rules are put into this kind of algorithmic engine and people can use that. And it's, it's also not, um, it's not binding. So people can use the advice that's generated by those algorithms on an advisory basis. So they just have a yardstick of, you know, what a fair resolution would be. And if both parties agree to pay more or pay less, well, that's up to them. But I think that this whole notion of technology is the fourth party, it emphasizes that the third party doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, challenged or threatened by the fourth party. The third party and the fourth party have to work together. And there's a lot of stuff the third party does way better than the fourth party. Even if the fourth party, you know, even if computers are 100 times more powerful and they have access to, you know, 100 times faster bandwidth, they're still not going to be able to do some of the things that human mediators can do in terms of apologies and human connection and active listening. So I think third parties have to get smarter about how to work with fourth parties also because the fourth parties are moving targets. And there's, and you know, the fourth parties we have today are gonna look incredibly primitive in 10 or 20 years. Um, and, we're, and the fourth parties are gonna be way more ca- capable then, but we're the ones who get to decide what the fourth parties do and how to design them and how to make sure they work in ways that work in the interest of the disputants and the third parties. So that's what we all need to do is collaborate on envisioning the ideal fourth party that all of us want to partner with. Absolutely. And 
Um, so the third party has to do a better job of um, working with the fourth party. And you could say one is because the fourth party can complement the skill sets of the third party. The third party can focus on things that a human is better at um, right. addressing. And the fourth party also has its quote unquote comparative advantage of what it can do best, which is probably just sifting through tons of data and developing some kind of trends that have been discovered from that data. So, and relatedly, it's not just that the third party can benefit from working with a fourth party. I think the present reality today with the pandemic is that the fourth party is necessary to a certain extent. You know, there, there are um, disputes that can't really be resolved in person anymore solely due to the fact that there's the pandemic. Absolutely. And so, and so that kind of creates a door for the fourth party to um, have a, a stronger role. Uh, and, and so related to the pandemic, how do you think that this past, it feels like five years, but it's, it's just 13 or 14 months now. Right, how do you, right. How do you feel like the past uh, 13 or 14 months have impacted both reception of online dispute resolution and also uh, willingness for uh, people to experiment with different use cases of online dispute resolution? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I think, uh, you know, I've said multiple times over the last year, we're never going to go back to the way that it was January 2020. Like, that's gone forever. But we don't really know what January 2022 is going to look like. You know, if we can get to the point where we all get vaccinated and we hit herd immunity and then the concerns about COVID recede, you know, it's not going to be the same as it, as it had been prior to COVID, but is it going to be the same that it is now? And I don't really know the answer to that. I really, I kind of feel like uh, what the pandemic did in terms of ODR was it accelerated trends that were already happening. And I always felt that, you know, 50% of ADR was going to be technology-based at some point in the future. I just didn't realize that was like, that was all going to, I was going to go to 100% in about a month. Uh, you know, so every mediation was an online mediation for a good six months there. Um, and now as people start to get vaccinated and face-to-face -face interaction reopens, I think there are going to be some people that want to go back and do it face-to-face, -face, but I don't think that it's ever going to go back below that 50% because parties have just gotten so comfortable with the benefits. I mean, David Hoffman, who teaches the mediation class at, at Harvard Law School, I mean, just a giant in the field and a real, uh, you know, uh, a mentor and hero to me, you know, I remember having a conversation with him five, six years ago. And he was running Boston Law Collaborative, and he essentially did all of his disputes in person. And he said, you know, I just don't feel like online is a big part of my practice. I just really need to be there with the parties. And now he's had the experience of mediating a lot of these cases online. And, you know, he said to me the other day, he had me in his class, and he said, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to go back because I love it. And I think there's been a lot of studies now that demonstrate not only does technology help parties be at their best, because they can be in their happy place. They don't have to take time away from family, you know, um, and, and you, you can have a lot more flexibility in terms of time uh, because you don't have to take time off of work and drive to some office downtown and sit there for a couple hours. You know, you can, what we've seen with some of these ODR implementations in the courts is 85% of the resolutions happen at a time when the court is closed for business because that's when people are free to engage their cases. So late on a weekday or on the weekends, you know, and I just think there's, something about working out your parenting plan, um, you know, 
sitting in bed with a glass of Merlot on the bedside table and your laptop open and your mom on speakerphone, you know, trying to figure out, do we want Easter or Christmas, as opposed to driving down to, you know, judges chambers at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday and having to dress up and sitting across the table from the person you could barely stand to look at because you're so mad at them. So, you know, I think the parties, what is, what's happened during the pandemic is kind of the seal has been broken and people have been forced by the virus to, to try it. And I think now that people have tried it, they're like, wow, that really, that's great. <laughs> you know, I like that. And I think what it does is it adds a tool to their toolbox. It doesn't mean that they're not going to meet face to face. There's still going to be plenty of face to face mediations. And there are plenty of circumstances where a mediator, if they're following their ethical obligations, they should, they should say, no, we're not going to do this online. We're actually going to get together face to face. But I think now when you say to a party or when you say to a you know, co-counsel or when you say to a business partner, hey, let's do it on Zoom. They go, okay. Like they know exactly what that means. Zoom is a new telephone. Everybody's got their account set up. You know, they got the camera set up on their laptop. So sure, let's do it on Zoom. That'll be easier anyway. So I, I just think it's what my aspiration for ODR was always that it would become the new normal. And then in 20 years, people would look back and say, well, of course, why did you spend so much time advocating for that? Because it's so obvious that that was the future. If we can achieve that, we've won. And when I go to conferences and I see, you know, judges or court administrators do a presentation and they talk about how ODR is the future of civil justice and it just makes sense, that's great. I don't need them to cite me. It means we've won. If they think the idea is their idea and that they've come to the conclusion that this is the best way to move forward, awesome. That's, that's great. And if it just sort of disappears into the woodwork because everyone's sort of using it so seamlessly, we might not even need terminology for it one day because it's just going to be the default. Um, so that, that's hopefully where we're headed. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I like, I just want to hold on to the quote, the seal has been broken <laughs> That's it. <laughs> because it does, it does feel like the pandemic has broken the seal and the seal would be kind of the, the stranglehold, if you will, that the mediators feel that they need to attach themselves to a real or an in-person situation in order to resolve disputes and the seal has been broken over the past 14 months where, you know, um, I, I, I'm in Chicago right now and I've spoken with a host of different mediators here sure. and, and they are historically have been resistant to online dispute resolution or just even appearing in an online forum to resolve disputes. And since the pandemic has hit, a lot of them are like, wow, I see so many benefits that this can bring. And it's focused mostly on the flexibility that it brings to mediating parties. You don't have to sit in traffic to get to the court. Um, you don't have to uh, take off work, right? To, to uh, do mediation to the same extent as with online dispute resolution. So to me, it almost feels like a access to justice issue as well, because when you are increasing flexibility for uh, people who can't take off work, people who can't get a house sitter or babysitter, for their children, and now you're allowing them to still um, appear and resolve those disputes without having to sacrifice their income or without having to sacrifice uh, expenses for a babysitter. There's there is an access to justice angle that feels oh, pretty lucid. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you look at the statistics being generated by these court ODR programs, I think uh, Franklin County. Uh, in Ohio released a study, their, their program that they deployed with Matterhorn, I think they said default judgments have dropped by like 60% because people can show up. 
you know, a lot of the people, these debtors, you know, they would have decisions kind of automatically filed against them in small claims court because they couldn't show up to defend themselves. Um, and now they're actually responding. So you have way fewer default judgments. Now, I, I don't know if that necessarily means that those people are all proving that they don't owe the debts that they that the uh, creditors say that they owe. But the point is, why would you set up a system that's dependent on geographic presence when that so advantages one party over the other? And we never really thought about geographic location as a form of privilege in a, a case. But if a lawyer is right across the street from the courthouse and they're filing a case against somebody who lives two hours away, well, that's a huge advantage for the person that lives across the street from the courthouse. And I think there's something about technology that really levels that playing field. So that's why the Pew Charitable Trust has put all this money into trying to expand access to justice through ODR, because it, you know it's not that hard to see how these tools massively open the courthouse doors and level the playing field if you do it right. Yeah, I agree. So I, I did want to transition slightly to talk about eBay because um, I, I would be remiss, frankly, to not talk about eBay with you. Sure. And I'll just I'll, I'll disclose that when I was in high school and for part of my undergrad, eBay was one of my primary sources of income because I oh, would, hey. I, would <laughs> Good. I, I would buy and sell on there mostly, you know, um, kind of arbitrage, if you will. Absolutely. Uh, it's going to be a and, good business if you find a good uh, niche. Absolutely. Where you, you find underpriced price, underpriced products that are not well described. I've certainly yeah. done that on eBay. Yeah. And you've also been involved with eBay's online dispute resolution platform. And I think, at least for me as a, um, as a merchant, if you will, on the marketplace, I've noticed that having clarity in terms of if I have a disagreement with a buyer, this is what my options will be to resolve that. Having clarity that if this dispute develops that the buyer won't have complete control over giving me like a one-star rating without any opportunity totally. for a response from me. So, so in many ways, I'm, I'm thanking you for all the work you've done with eBay because it's helped me personally when I was uh, in college. But I was also just curious about, you know, um, when, when you were with eBay uh, and working on the ODR platform there, what some of the system design considerations that you were taking into, you know, the, into the picture for how to um, adapt from in-person disputes to a online system where everything is done remotely. Sure, sure. Well, you're a savvy eBay user, so we could really go deep and I could talk about, you know, all, all of the insights. I mean, I, I had to learn a lot about the culture of eBay and then PayPal while I was there, uh, and, and it was a real education. Um, you know, I, I, it's funny, I often, when I am um, speaking to a crowd of people and I'm talking about the eBay stuff, I say, you know, who here has used the eBay resolution process, resolution center? And people put up their hands and I say, well, did you get your money back? And if somebody said, yeah, well, I got my money back, then I say, well, that's because of me. You know, I built that. I built that process. <laughs> but then I say to somebody, would you get your money back? And they say, no, I didn't get my money back. I say, oh, well, I left a long time ago and they've, <laughs> they've really messed it up. And, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it really doesn't work the way that we. But, uh, you know, I mean, I do think the good news is we've resolved hundreds of millions, if not more than a billion disputes at this point through the ODR systems that we built at eBay and PayPal. And you know, one of the things that you said, I think, which, which is really important, particularly from the merchant side, because merchants are engaging in these transactions at scale, is predictability. 
And I think this is something we often overlook in the dispute resolution field. Uh, you know, we often think about, well, in every case, we want to find, you know, the right outcome for that case. And, you know, every case, every dispute is a snowflake. So we need to come in and fit the form to the fuss and listen to the parties. And, you know, but one of the things that was really important at eBay, as you say, for merchants, is you don't want to be systemically exposed to buyers that are, are given sort of rights and powers through the software that they use to abuse you. And there was such a thing as buyer fraud. There was such a thing as seller extortion, you know, where they would extort a seller and say, look, I'm going to give you a bad review unless you give me another 10 bucks off this item or whatever. Uh, and I think that uh, by creating certain seller protection programs and saying, you know, sellers, if you do these things, you will be protected. You know, one of the things when I first got to eBay um, is they evaluated every case on its own merits. So if a seller, if a buyer said, hey, I never got the item and the seller said, well, hey, I shipped the item. Well, then we had to get a customer service rep to go in and do a whole investigation. And sometimes the sellers would send us a postal receipt that said, yeah, I shipped something to this zip code on this date, you know, which is the right date in terms of when it was purchased and the weight, you know, is appropriate. So, I mean, here's my receipt, like it's proof that I shipped it. And the buyer would say, yeah, but I never got it. Like it, it doesn't matter that the seller has a receipt that said, I mean, it never showed up. It never made it to my house. Now that may be that it was delivered and somebody stole it off their porch. Maybe it may be that it's sitting in some post office someplace and the, and the seller didn't pay for tracking. So their challenge was we just had a lot of disputes that were kind of unresolvable. And we had to do a lot of work talking to both sides and seeing who we believed. And oftentimes eBay would just take the bullet and say, you know, I'm so sorry, buyer, you didn't get it. Okay, here's your money back. And the seller, you know, would say, okay, you can keep the money because there was just no way to resolve the case. So one of the things that we did was we changed the rules so it was much more explicit. So we would say to the seller, you have to get delivery confirmation for your items. And if, if the buyer says that they never, if they never received it, we're going to ask you for your delivery confirmation number. And if you don't have your delivery confirmation number, you're going to lose, which means we're not asking for proof that you shipped it. We're asking for proof that the buyer received it. And if you can't deliver that proof, even if you have a receipt that shows that you shipped it, you're still going to lose. And the sellers at the beginning, when we announced that, they were annoyed because they said, well, now I have to pay more money now to get that delivery confirmation number. Um, but what, what it did was it created consistency. And we then went to the postal service and we got really, really cheap delivery confirmation numbers. So if they buy their label through eBay, then it's like you automatically get you know, tracking. And, and we also said, if the item was over 250 bucks, you need to get signature confirmation because delivery confirmation, you know, sort of the higher bar. So by creating these rules that everybody knew what the rules were, the buyers knew what the rules were, the sellers knew what the rules were, and then we could automate the system. So the buyer said, I never got the item. Seller, do you have a delivery, delivery confirmation number? Yes, here it is. We can automatically look it up. Oh, it's in Memphis. It should be at the buyer in two days. Everybody's happier. And the marketplace way, works way better than if we were to have individual customer service reps, e.g. mediators or arbitrators, going into each case and doing an investigation into each snowflake. So again, you know, maybe what I was talking about before is this whole notion that technology was going to sort of dehumanize and you know, automate everything. I think to a certain extent that is true in circumstances like eBay. And I think the, the, the delivery, the creation of the resolution center with its sort of centralized console and systematized processes and consistent rules for resolving disputes, I think eventually everybody within the eBay ecosystem, all of our 250 million users all over the world, that created an enormous amount of trust and confidence in e-commerce. 
And at, at the time when I was at eBay, we were really the biggest e-commerce company in the world. I mean, we were the ones who were figuring out how it was going to work. Now, Amazon's taken over and Alibaba has taken over. So they're a lot bigger than eBay is now. But they all have their own resolution processes now because they learned from eBay's experience. So I think it is it is interesting what you say, Oladeji, about the about you know, kind of creating that consistency. That's not mm -hmm. something we often think about in dispute systems design. But from an eBay perspective, I felt like they hired me to build a civil justice system. And it had to be 90% automated. And, you know, we didn't know how to do it, but they gave us, couple, you know, 10, 20 million bucks. We went out, we built it and it worked. And I, I think that that's been a very, it's been kind of a city on a hill for every, all of the ODR implementations that have come afterward. Yeah, I, I agree. And eBay had this international reach and really it doesn't, when you think about it, online o ODR just feels like the logical outcome of these online transactions because people are transacting with each other from around the world, right? They're not located in the same state. They're not located in the same country. They're not even located in the same um, time zone. Right. And, and because of that, uh, it seems quite difficult to expect the same um, historical uh, reliance on court systems to resolve an online dispute or certainly even reliance on ADR practitioners who believe in face-to-face -face interactions to still um, resolve these online disputes. So it feels like uh, you were certainly at the forefront and now when we look back at it, it just feels like the logical outcome of e-commerce. Well, I, again, uh, you know, I, uh, one thing I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you before, but I'm a descendant of Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the Supreme Court Justice. I don't know. He's like my great, great, great uncle or something like that. Uh, not a direct line. He didn't have any kids, but his dad was a professor at Harvard. And I'm in that line through my dad's mom. Um, and Holmes, I've written, so I read a lot of Holmes. And Holmes, uh, you know, he talked a lot about the beauty of the law. Now, at the time when, you know, so you'll talk to some professors at Harvard Law that, you know, they act as if the civil code was brought down off the mountain by Moses on, you know, stone tablets. Like this is the greatest thing, you know, it, it's immutable, it's, it's perfect, it, you know, it, we have to constantly revise it, but essentially this is the best way to do things. But, and I, I can see at the time in the world that Holmes lived in, you know, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, you know, there was no way to think about the fact that somebody was going to have a little, you know, glass device in their pocket that they could pull out and go swipe, swipe, swipe and buy a $20 item from Hong Kong. You know, I mean, that the justice system, as it was created at the time, was very much based on the world that existed at the time. So, you know, but now we have the internet, and it's enabling all of us, you know, every one of us is like a mini TV studio, and we can connect with anyone around the world with just a couple swipes of our fingers on the screen of our iPhones or our Android phones. So, you know, you're right, the courts, the judicial system is bound by geography. It's like, well, where are you? Well, I'm in Cambridge. Okay, well, that means you're subject to Massachusetts law, US law, you know, but the internet doesn't care about Cambridge or Massachusetts versus Vermont or US versus Canada or Canada versus Argentina. You know, we all are interacting in this very streamlined way and our identities have become much more fluid. And this whole notion of where we are is a very tough question. I mean, I was involved with a UN group. We worked on ODR policy at uh, UNCITRAL for six years. And really the whole thing ran aground on the question of where are you? You know, like that's not really an answerable question anymore. And the whole notion of what jurisdiction should apply when I engage in a transaction, that's a tough question. 
I mean, if I'm in, if I'm a U.S. citizen, but I'm in England and I buy something on eBay from someone in Argentina, I mean, it's just, you know, it's only a $50 transaction. There's no lawyer, there's no court that can sort that out. So we have to build an entirely new justice system, one that works the way the internet works. And I think the, and I think ODR, and if you think about Lex Mercatoria, like international arbitration, provides a lot more guidance for how you can build a system that, that, that can cross those borders and provide those fast and fair resolutions in a consistent way. It's a much, much better model than what we have in the courts, which is very tied to geography and judges and jails and laws and you know uh, police. And that, that's just not gonna work on the internet when you can change your identity as quickly as you change your IP address. So that's what's so exciting, not only about what we've done with ODR in e-commerce, like what's happened at eBay, and I'm about to do this, um, this conference, this three-day conference for APEC, thinking about how do we protect consumers in these cross-border transactions because it's growing 20% a year. I mean, eventually it's gonna be the majority of transactions are gonna be these online transactions. And all these consumer protection authorities from all these countries around the world are like, what are we gonna do with this? But it's also this notion of decentralized justice, which is where we, we back our justice system, not with the coercive power of the state, but we back it with math, just like you know, Bitcoin. Uh, you know, we have blockchain, we have smart contracts. You and I can reach an agreement. We can memorialize that in a smart contract, which is really a little piece of computer code. We both e-sign it. We put it into this unalterable digital ledger, the blockchain, and it's self-enforcing. And then you know what? We have a contract. It's not dependent on any law. It's not dependent on any jurisdiction. I don't need a judge to enforce it because it, it's self-enforcing. You know, it, it's backed by the algorithm. And I think that that's a pretty radical rethinking of the way the justice system could work. And, and, and there are a lot of people that think, well, that's, you know, that's George Jetson stuff. That's just the future. But that's the way ODR sounded in 2001. Yeah. And yeah. And, here. yeah. and you're, you're touching on just a really important trend that we've seen really over the past 10 years-ish, but especially during the pandemic, where um, the, the really, I think the pandemic could be called the rise of cryptocurrencies and the rise of uh, using smart contracts for legitimate transactions. And from my perspective, I think it's hilarious to be here speaking with you about this because uh, in around November or October of last year, yeah, I was doing a research project um, and I, I was trying to publish something and I, I thought it was really innovative, but the basic concept is with smart contracts, the the, the perfect way of resolving disputes that come out of s smart contracts is with online dispute resolution. And I was speaking with Allison Carroll, who's uh, sure. the di director of Northwestern Law's um, ADR program. And I was like, this is innovative. Like no one else has thought of this. And she was like, wait, wait, Oladeji, hold on a second. I think <laughs> Colin Rule just wrote about this. <laughs> well, look, I got to be clear. That's Allison and my mutual friend, Amy Schmitz, who is the real mover and shaker behind that piece. But yes, I, I, I did co, I was a co-author with her and, and uh, she had some great insights there. But, and I know some companies that are doing some great work in that space, smart contract ODR. If you look at JUR, J-U-R dot I-O, if you look at Kleros dot I-O, they're, it's amazing what they're doing. And I think that a lot of people look at that and they go, what is this? Why is this relevant to me? But exa it's exactly what I was saying. It, it feels to me very much like where ODR was in 2000, 2001. And people just looked at me like I, I had two heads, like that's never gonna happen. 
and it all happened. So a lot of the stuff that you that you were talking about, the insight that you had, you're right. It's just the rest of the world has to catch up with you. And, I, you know, that I've had that experience over my lifetime. So now you can have that experience, too. You know, you, you know what the future is. What's the old Gandhi quote? You know, first they ignore you. Mm-hmm. Then they make fun of you. Then they argue with you. And then they say, oh, yeah, we always knew you were right. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen that happen with ODR. And I bet that's also going to happen with decentralized justice. Yeah, yeah. And... So uh, you, you've now mentioned Kleros, and I, I think Kleros has this really interesting model, right? It's, it's a, um, a, a dispute resolution mechanism that's on Ethereum's blockchain. Right. Uh, and essentially, it's a, a crowdsourced, decentralized way for nodes to um, resolve disputes that generate mostly on the internet, but it has a potential use case for in-person real life transactions that's off of the internet, which I, which I think is really interesting. And I feel like I'm not sure I'll actually be speaking with Federico um, and Sophie Knappert in a future episode uh, about, about this topic. But I, I do feel like you had the preceding idea that contributed to what Clearos has developed into because you, you wrote about, uh, the wisdom of the crowds for eBay's uh, uh, community court system, and I'm I'm curious there. Uh, maybe some learning lessons that were achieved from um, having this crowdsourced dispute resolution mechanism for resolving online disputes, and and this is kind of distinct from eBay's resolution center, and now we're just decentralizing it so that people with a moderate level of experience with eBay can now um, issue decisions um, about disputes that develop. So I'm curious about just learning lessons that you garnered from uh, eBay's community court. Sure. Well, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, and uh, you know I, I have a poster here on my wall of, uh, of Frank Sander. You know, oh. who, who's sort of a, you know, my, my hero in, you know, thinking through multi, the multi-door courthouse and thinking through fitting the forum to the fuss. I couldn't have done anything that I did without any of, of Frank's work. And it's not just Frank. I mean, there's a whole generation of innovators and, and uh, the program on negotiation at Harvard was front and center. So to meet people like Howard Rafa and meet people like Roger Fisher, I mean, you know, they, they created all of this. So, um, but I do think there was a time early on, and again, even in crowdsource dispute resolution, if I think back to the earliest days when I was first getting involved in the, in the late 90s, you know, there were already some websites that were sort of thinking through and they were, they were really calling them like e-juries. Uh, and a lot of them were kind of like entertainment sites. You know, if you had a disagreement, you could go to this website, you would both, you could make your case and then they would bring in the public to vote in essence. I think even the People's Court had something called People's Court Online where you could come and vote and, you know, whoever got a majority of the votes would win. Um, but right when uh, Chitu Nagarajan, my co-founder at Modria, and I were both at uh, eBay and PayPal, we started something called the Community Court, and it was an attempt to use crowdsourcing to resolve disputes. So if a if a buyer and a seller had a disagreement, they could come come to the Community Court, they could file it, each kind of lay out their case and respond to the other side's points, and then we would get a a jury of uh, essentially eBay community members who had volunteered to serve. We tested to make sure they didn't have any relationship uh, with the parties in the case. And they would all come in, look at the evidence, render a decision, and whoever got a majority, eBay would enforce the outcome um, based on that. So 
we, you know, we did, I think we did tens of thousands of disputes, which is a relatively modest amount considering we were doing 60 million disputes a year through the Resolution Center. But we wrote up our results. And I remember we presented them at a conference, I think it was in Hong Kong. And uh, there were some representatives there from Alibaba, which was a, a competitor e-commerce website to EachNet, which was eBay's big play in, in China, kind of our big e-commerce. And they turned that into eBay China and it completely failed. But Alibaba turned into the biggest e-commerce website in the world. And they have really run with that crowdsourced dispute resolution model. And I, I, my understanding is they've resolved tens of millions of disputes using that crowdsourcing approach. Now, the thing that, that Federico has brought to it, and this goes far beyond my ability to, to think about crowdsourcing, I do think some of the early insights we generated were, were, uh, were inspirational to him. But by using the, uh, the Ethereum infrastructure, he's trying to come up with sort of algorithmic incentives that would create an ongoing model for how the Claros system could be self-perpetuating. And by issuing these, um, uh, you know, the coins that they've minted, and then all of the jurors in their system are incentivized to provide good service through Claros, through the use of these coins, and participating on juries. It's really an innovative idea. And I think, I think Jur is kind of in the same hunt as Claros. You know, they've just announced that they're going to be doing a, kind of a more traditional arbitration type service as well that can be integrated in the smart contracts. But again, what's, what's really innovative is to take this kind of um, you know, the, the Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, virtual currency world is a finance system backed by math. And what I've been talking about with decentralized justice and what, what I think Federico is talking about and Alessandro and Jur is talking about is it's a justice system backed by math. And so I, and, and they're thinking, they're asking um, questions, complicated questions that are kind of above my pay grade. Like I, I'm impressed by how much, uh, you know, they can think through all of these, you know, game theoretical uh, incentive processes for all the participants in the system to design something that would be self-sustaining and ongoing. But I do think, you know, we're, we're all standing on each other's shoulders, as I say, and, you know, it, it may be that there's some Zuckerberg in legal tech out there who's going to be, you know, multi-hundred billionaire, um, you know, that stands on their shoulders, it stands on uh, Federico and Alessandro's shoulders. You know, they could be in third grade in Bangalore right now. Like, we don't know. We don't know where, how long it's going to take or which one of these innovations is going to hit scale. That's kind of what's cool about you know, this Schumpeterian creative destruction is you never know what's really going to catch the imagination and light on fire. But I really do feel like they're doing essential work uh, that that's that's sketching out uh, some uncharted waters for us. And, and I, I can't wait to see, you know, what we what we build in that newly discovered part of the of the cyberspace. Yeah, it's it's a really exciting project. Um, and as you said it best, we're, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. And I feel like a lot of the work that they've done is directly related to some um, ideological developments that are related to what you've done. And then the work that you've done is, is related to your ancestor, Oliver Wendell Holmes. <laughs> so it, it's beautiful to Maybe. see. I'm not sure what uh, <laughs> Uncle Oliver would make out of what he's doing. I think he might be, uh, you know, he's kind of an ornery guy. He, he, he was very famous for saying, I hate justice. I hate justice. You know, I hate when people call me Justice Holmes. My job is to interpret the law. He loved the law. And I may be doing some things that undermine the law. So if you're spinning in your grave, I apologize, Uncle Oliver. But uh, we're all doing the best that we can. Yeah. yeah. So I did, I did have some questions about you specifically, Colin, um, because uh -oh. you, you're, you're always working on so many interesting things. And actually, one thing I really admire with you is that 
um, you, you publish so much um, legal uh, material. And at the same time, you're also at the cutting edge of practice in online dispute resolution. And, and I, I think that's just so impressive to both influence the field from your thoughts and also your actions. So I have to ask you some questions. Uh, sure. The first is about the youth conference. Um, so what's going on with the youth conference and what was the, the driving force around its, its creation? Oh, thank you for raising that. Um, yeah, the, we actually did a conference last year as part of Mediate.com. That was when I took on the CEO role at Mediate.com in June. And Jim Malamed, who had been the CEO prior to me, he had been planning for multiple years to do a conference called Mediation 2020, which was sort of looking at the next 10 years of mediation. And um, then the pandemic hit, so we couldn't do it in person. So we ended up doing it online. And it was really a great conference. I mean, very inspirational to have all these thought leaders from the growth of mediation come together and sort of sketch out, excuse me, where we're headed. But one of the takeaways, the big takeaways from that conference is, you know, we're an aging field. A lot of the people who do the keynotes at these conferences are 70 plus. And, you know, there's a lot of young people who probably have a better idea as to where all of this not only is heading, but should be heading than we do. And oftentimes those people don't get spots at speaking spots at conferences. So one of the things that we resolved as one of our takeaways from Mediation 2020 was we wanted to have a conference where the presenters and the designers were all younger practitioners, preferably under 30. Uh, who can talk about what do they see, where do they see this going, what's the work that inspires them. And, you know, hopefully they're also going to, you know, give it to the dinosaurs like me straight and say, look, this is what you got wrong. Like this is, we don't think this is where the field needs to be going. These are, you know, there, there are certain pieties that we hold in the field that the younger generation is uh, in a very welcome way questioning. And I think that that's what we really want this uh, youth conference to be. So, I know we've reached out to you and uh, we reached out to some other folks in the Harvard ecosystem, but we, um, Claire Fowler from the mediation, uh, mediate.com team is really running this and I could not be more excited about it. And I plan to just shut up and listen. That's going to be my, my focus for the days. But uh, if anyone hearing this is, um, is eager to, to learn more or join, it's free for anybody under 30. We are charging the dinosaurs a little bit of money to cover some of our costs. But uh, I, I think it's going to be a really, really great gathering and that it's, it's coming together in a very exciting way. So, and for our listeners, where would they go to sign up and register? I think if you just go into Google and you put Mediate Youth Conference, it'll come right up. Um, but I know there's an, a banner ad for it at mediate.com. So you can go there and just click on it and you'll see all the details. Perfect. Perfect. And also related to mediate.com, you're the CEO there. What are some interesting projects that you've been working on since taking over? Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's so much going on. Well, one of the things I'm, I'm really enjoying is we've done a six month um, task force on envisioning the future of mediation training online. And uh, because again, um, once the pandemic hit, all mediations became online mediations, but also all mediation trainings became online mediation trainings. And the question is, how can we ensure that we're doing a good job uh, educating the next generation of, of mediators, not only in the US, but around the world? So right now we're having a series of readouts from all the different working groups uh, that are under that uh, task force. And it's happening every Friday morning from 9 to 11. Again, it's totally free. Uh, we just had a readout from all of the, uh, the global um, participants last Friday. So we heard from 
Moranike Obifurinde about uh, ODR in Africa. We heard from Alberto Elisievetsky about what's happening in South America. Um, we, we've heard uh, about Russia. We heard about India. We, it's, it's, and, and again, I think um, this has been uh, a shortcoming of the field. I think it's been uh, the dispute resolution field's been a little bit North America and Europe, European centric. And I do feel like one of the benefits of technology is that's being completely changed because the dialogue can go in both directions. There's such cross fertilization. So uh, I would highly encourage everybody to check out that series of forum readouts. Again, there's a big banner ad on, on mediate.com about that. Um, but it's, but I find it fascinating and it's, it's pushing the practice of the field in directions that I hadn't anticipated. So that's just another example, but I, I do encourage everyone and also not only um, mediate.com, which is a vibrant community. We've got more than 25,000 mediators there. We've also launched arbitrate.com and we're doing the same things on the arbitration side of the field. The next one is ombuds.org, which I'm very Ooh. excited about. So um, stay tuned for that. But yeah, we're building lots of new tools and we're uh, really trying to push the practice into the 21st century. So it's, I, I, I feel um, like I'm in the absolute right place for me. And I, I love hanging out with all my mediation friends every day. So I couldn't be happier. That's beautiful. That's all we can ask for, right? Happiness from work. Yeah, that's it. So one final question, Colin Rule, the godfather of online dispute resolution. Um, what do you believe about the future of technology and dispute resolution that very few people in this industry believe? Hmm, that's a good question. I know, tough one, tough one. one. <laughs> well, I will say again, it's not that hard. You can probably just tell from this conversation with me, it's easy to have me spin off into my futuristic nonsense. One of the things that's good about being a, a prognosticator of the future is nobody ever comes back to you in 10 years and say, hey, you were wrong. <laughs> so, you know, and there's no way to uh, prove or disprove any of my assertions. But I really do think, I do think, I'm an optimist at heart. And I do think that technology can be a force for human empathy. I think they talk, you know, Richard Susskind in his book, Online Courts in the Future of Justice, he talks about, you know, that we talk about the unbanked. These are people around the world that don't have access to banks or the yeah. financial system. Um, and, you know, in this world, if you don't have access to that system, you're going to get rolled over. You know, even if you're making money and stuffing it in your mattress, you're losing value every day. Um, and I think we need to think about the unjustest. And I think what's exciting about the fact that the future of justice is decentralized and it's, it's a service, not a place, I think we're going to be able to provide access to the 50% of people in the world that don't have access to a working justice system. And I think that's going to create fairness. I think that's going to help us deliver on our goals of equality and, and justice for all in a way that would have been inconceivable to my great, great, great uncle Oliver. Um, you know, uh, and it's going to be disruptive. There's no question that it's going to be disruptive. I also think, you know, that, that, that this whole sort of vision that we're all going to be dressed in the same gray jumpsuits and we're all going to have the same values. I just don't think that's the way humans work. I think we're going to reserve in-person interaction for our friends and our family members and our immediate community. And pretty much everything that is not that is going to go online. Every professional interaction, every academic interaction, you know, talking to your lawyer, talking to your dentist, all of that is going to move online. And the tools that we have now, you know, Zoom is amazing. Thank, I mean, it's incredible. It's like a miracle compared to where we were 20 years ago. In 20 years, we're going to look back on Zoom and they're going to scoff at how primitive it was and all the connection issues. And I think you're on mute, you know, because we're going to have full 8K hologram 
you know, surround sound, augmented <laughs> reality, goggles piped directly into our optic nerve. I mean, it's eventually somebody's who the technology that is going to come in the next 20 years is going to make the technology that came in the last 20 years look very primitive. Somebody's going to invent a hat at Google that reads your brain waves, and then you can communicate with everybody else who's wearing a hat without saying anything. And it's going to change everything. It's going to change everything. And it's going to be chaotic. And it's going to help. It's going to force us to rethink about what it means to be a person, uh, what it means to be an American, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, all of those things. We're going to have to answer a lot of hard questions. But I'm optimistic that the by asking these questions and wrestling with these, the arc of history bends towards justice. And eventually, we're going to figure it out. So we just have to weather these storms and do the best we can at each point and, and build a strong foundation so that the so that as i said when future generations stand on our on our shoulders uh they won't feel rickety so i don't know there's there's a few thoughts for you yeah all beautiful and colin i just i i have to thank you because you you are such a visionary and this hour chatting with you has been a complete joy for me so so thanks for taking time out thanks for just sharing um all the work you've done in this field and also your view of the future with our listeners. We, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Oladeji. It was absolutely the pleasure. It was mine. So thanks so much for listening to the very first episode of Convergence. Similarly to Colin, I also believe in the wisdom of the crowds. So if you have any thoughts, questions, or recommendations for me, feel free to email me at convergencehnmcp at gmail.com. That's convergencehnmcp at gmail.com. Peace.